WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of comics like Boom Studios Once and Future, Marvel's Eternals, and Images Die, Kieran Gillen. Welcome, Kieran. Hello. Uh, so normally we like to ask our first time guests about the first comics they remember reading, but uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, this time, I'm going to break from tradition over here. Can you, t- can you tell us about the first RPG that you remember DMing? Well, that's easy. Uh, not, not easy, uh, but like there is a, oh, there's a hard line. Uh, my first RPG was Middle Earth role playing, mm-hmm. which I, my parents got for me in I think Christmas 1985, um, which is the Games Workshop edition. Uh, and I don't know if you know anything about Merps. Merps is a cut-down version of a game called um, Rollmaster. And Rollmaster is incredibly complicated. Like, Rollmaster was a game which had, like, 80 pages of tables from weapons. Like, each individual weapon, like, had a table. And each table had 20 columns. And each column had, like, over, like, 100 entries down the side. And you rolled the D100 at all the math. And then it said a number of hit points damage. And you got criticals. And the criticals went to other tables, which you looked up other things to see that could possibly happen. Merps wasn't that, but it was getting there. So this like 10, 11 year old, we opened it on Christmas morning and sort of just blink confusedly at this. And me and my <laughs> brother, who's like two and a half years younger than me, we like we got it out and we kind of, because it came with cardboard figures and maps and stuff. So we put the figures on the maps and occasionally we looked up like stuff like Fireball on a table and just pushed them around and used them as toys. And across the next several years, <laughs> me and my friends played Merps. I mean, there was other games that came in as well. But we, I basically grew into the system. It was very much like the equivalent of being given an enormous pair of trousers and they don't fit me <laughs> at all. Uh, but we kind of like wore them for a while because that's what we had. Uh, yeah, Merps. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I was, this is coming from me being a big Tolkien head as a kid as well. So obviously my parents saw that and was like, oh, that's a good game. Um, and maybe it, yeah. Just, just the, starting right in the deep end with everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there was no no small merchants. I tell you what, the funny the funny thing is when I was designing the Diarchy tree, I was aware like there's something I was trying to do immediately. And the reason I was trying to do it, I realized it goes all the way back to the first written example in the manual that it, it had an example of play as in what games what happens in a game. And I was trying to do a way to do simultaneous, I was basically doing simultaneous actions as a default, which is how Merps does it. Because Merps mm-hmm. is this very weird thing, and the, the character is facing the wrong way, so can't do any. So it ends up not knowing, you know, they completely do the simulationist mode. Um, and I got rid of that. That was just literally my kind of teenage mind mugging me. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I, I was thrilled when I think it was D&D 3.0 when they got rid of facing, and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Having to waste your action to turn around, you're killing me. <laughs> So uh, we're going we're gonna to bounce around like the uh, rubber balls of chaos that we are, but I wanted to start off talking about Once in Future, uh, which is uh, your series on the horrors of Athuriana at uh, Boom. Uh, by the time you hear this, uh, issue 20 will have come out. Uh, Bridget, Duncan, and Rose have set up new digs for everyone from the nursing home. Uh, Arthur's found a new enemy, and it appears the mythology of the world is about to expand once again. Uh, has this been from Jump a research heavy book for you given you're working off apocryphal history and medieval literature mythology and all of that um it has not been a research heavy book for me okay. and that's that the for me is doing a lot of heavy lifting there mm-hmm. I, I, tell you, I, I genuinely had it was interviewed by Anthony Johnston he was his podcast um and he said you're, you're someone who's quite famed for doing I don't know if you know about this but people talk about you doing a stupid amount of research and hey that was news <laughs> to me because uh, um, uh, 
but what's the future? Yeah, I've read some stuff, but like not a, not like I have to die. But die is like fifty books. You know, I read lots of stuff and big, serious academic books about all manner of stuff. And like, what's the future? Is a much lighter book. Like I'm like I'm wrestling with like historical stuff, and I'm looking at historical facts and like riffing on weird bits of mythology and whatever. Um, but um, it's not a research heavy book. You know what I mean? Like, it's like I've read some stuff, but like I don't consider that's kind of like I, I view that as the bare minimum. And a lot of it's kind of also the fact it's a book about it's not a history in the same way. Dies a history because I need to know where X person was in 1827. Like, what's the future is deliberately built around. Oh, all these stories happen simultaneously, and it's about how those stories have changed. Like, I haven't read like the I've read Le Mort d'Art. You know, I haven't actually gone back and read all of that. I've read some of it. But like, I've much read about how the stories have changed over the period. So more useful for what's the future is, okay, when the French arrived, the Arthurian myths changed in this way. In the 19th century, they changed in this way. And that's kind of, because my interest is dovetailing that with the history of the United Kingdom and our ideas about nationalism. You know, that's what the book's quote unquote about. So anything that's not about it isn't really relevant. But the thing is, it's also like a really good monster manual. Like I just hit stuff um, and uh, go through it. I mean, for example, and some stuff is just stuff you know, right? Is you know, I mean, it's a very much a potpourri of British um, mythology. <laughs> I mean, like slight spoilers of issue twenty, but if it's out, people might know it. Like I, I drop a gorgon at the end of issue twenty, <laughs> and the gorgon is the uh, in I used to live in Bath, and the Baths have a temple of Minerva there, and they've got a, a natural similar Bath University, and quite often about the town is this pediment. I think that's the right word, basically statue of this male gorgon's head. Now some people think it's Poseidon, but you know. In my book isn't so like the idea of there being a, this kind of gorgon a male gorgon which is as i said rare in bath is me just riffing from there and especially this arc um when it's a bit of a travelogue you know like bridget and duncan end up driving around a bit as reasons do complicated which we'll get to shortly it's kind of okay what myths are in this town and we kind of get um i mean i think i tell you, i don't think we're i tell you, the best comparison would probably be something like hellboy i mean i think once the future shows its academic stuff more than hellboy does but at the same time, Hellboy is very much like, you know, he's clearly gone and looked into folklore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But it's fun. You know, you don't, you never write a book about something you're not interested in. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Uh, you know, how, mu- how much, when you're, when you're writing this comic and you're working with uh, all this Ar- Arthurian and other lore, do you feel like you need to explain it to the reader? And how much do you feel like n- n- they can Google it? They're probably reading it on a computer anyway. <laughs> Well, but it's tricky because it's one of those things like um, if I think it will confuse them. Mm-hmm. I mean, things like that, there's always a point in my story. One of my many flaws as a writer is this point about like either issue 15 or issue four in a fight, six issue arc, where everything just got too confusing. And one of my characters has to stop and try to tell everybody how it's going. And that's normally when people get confused again because actually just explaining stuff confuses people because it involves my too many moving parts, bit of plotting. Um, mm-hmm. I've lost what the question is. Oh, um, do I do people? I want people to understand everything. Um, I, as I said, the stuff which they need to know. It's kind of what what's the story based around? I mean, like one of the more confusing bits of the Future is we're doing games of finding the Grail Castle, and who finds the Grail Castle depends changes depending upon which story you're going, mm. and that's requires you to know that okay, the Grail were found by these three dudes in this one story, and these three dudes in this story, and we're in this story. So if it's one of the other three dudes turn up, it's a problem for the story. You know what I mean? So that's mm-hmm. quite an academic thing to know. Um, and there's no way anyone can understand the story about it. 
so we just say it <laughs> um but other stuff like the gorgon like um actually i'm lying bridget and duncan do explain it because you may be fixed because but maybe it becomes relevant down the line as well as in the kind of because i find that kind of as going all the way back to the sort of greco-roman stuff is the kind of like well britain had romans here for like hundreds of years you know that kind of we are all part of that you know that is part of british mythology um so it all it all sort of forms the larger thesis <laughs> um but i always all so i try to so I'm, that is all true but the other half is I'm, I'm always being a big believer into works of art as gateways like i have so much of like stuff i've loved to have been introduced in a very passing way in another text like i read dostoevsky first because it was mentioned in passing in um uh sort house five like Vonnegut just mentioned it um and i okay let's go in and photogram and like die and all these other stuff i've sort of done has always got that part to it in terms of like it's not like look at the books i've read but look at these books you can read you know it's, it's about trying to so much about my stuff is trying to share the basic joy of like art and you know that so that's the sort of two sides of how i think about that you get it Bunch of people picking up uh, Lamort Darth. <laughs> it's like it's really long. So that's it's, it's a really long book, like, and it's very repetitive. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there, there is good stuff. I mean, it's like going and reading like the because um, if even if you just dab, dabble in and out, if you go back to the uh, the histories, which is a very different way of writing off area and stuff, you get a very different vibe. You know, you get um, you know, and that's quite fun to see. Oh. It's not quite like writing work for hire, but how like, you know, you have a Batman, 1960s Batman is different to 1970s Batman and how we, these stories respond. In some ways, what's of use is a really like very comic book story, except I'm using Arthurian myths and riffing on it that way. Right. I mean, you bring in Lancelot, who didn't appear until much later in the Arthurian canon during the French uh, chivalric tradition. I, I took a whole class back many moons ago in college uh that was the arthurian matter of britain and we you know yeah. bits and pieces of the histories bits and pieces of the mort art up through uh holy grail <laughs> so we, we ended <laughs> class watching python which was delightful well, I, think, I do like the slow the descent into farce the thing is like that was definitely and obviously something dan and tamra do so well is the different authors and stuff from different periods which we give different aesthetics you know we so the kind of like the earlier like prehistories arthur we're giving this kind of quite grimy, undead vibe. And everything from the French medieval tradition, we're giving basically Power Rangers. I've kind of like, you know, not even just doing it. The other, they're very slick and beautiful. And like, I make, I literally make, you know, my suggestion for Arthur was like, let's make, sorry, not Arthur, Lancelot, let's make him literally made out of water. He's a, he's a you know, he's Lancelot of the like. He was, he was literally Prince Nam Namor. That's his origin. Uh, you know, let, let's make him out of water, including having fish swimming around. And that's kind of like, let's see the part of like, you know, when you're reading, like, those classic alt-dimension stories, you kind of want to see what's the cool new riff on Wolverine or Superman. And what's a, what's a cool game we can play? And that's kind of it. Like, there's so much, like, almost every issue I'll say, okay, uh, Dan, here's an idea for something, go for it. Like, let's see your Green Knight, let's see your Lancelot, let's see your Guinevere, or, you know, and you give enough to make it interesting. Because um, it's, um, it's the fun monster hunt. You know, that's, that's the thing, it's like... It is, it is once the future is just a lot of fun in that way as in look at the, look at the hell of this guy they're going to fight them now and probably kill them <laughs> but you know it's it's uh it's keeping trying to entertain dan is so much what i'm trying to do in this book uh i, I do like the idea of the uh 
the Super Sentai of the Round Table. <laughs> I mean, I mean so, so, have you read issue twenty yet? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, look at that. Look at the Lancelot fight. That is completely complete Super Sentai kind of like um, fight sequence. I love it. <laughs> it's fantastic. So uh, I kind of want to go back to to the beginning a little bit here. Uh, you know, when when Once in Future was first conceived, uh, you know, you and Boom are working out this this book. Like, where are you sort of in in your career? You like between projects at this point? Are you coming up on the end of of uh, Wikdiv? I know this is going back a couple of years now. So yeah, I think they just uh, mailed me. Um... I mean, people made me quite regularly because I've been out of work for hire for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, I think there's a sense when someone must be looking for work, mm-hmm. uh, or at least, that, you know, they w- w- worth a try. And, you know, it was success. Um, was it before or after Die? I forget. I, I, I must have been working at Die or close to. I think Die um, came out in 2018 and, and Once in the Future was the beginning of 2019, something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so they, their working overlapped. So mm-hmm. I, was, I was definitely looking at what next. Um, and Boom just mailed me. It's, it's so weird. Like, Boom said, hey, Dan Mora, you know, would you be interested with Dan Mora? Uh, here is, an, you know, the deal was, was, was good and it fit the, uh, the size of brain I had at that time. It was that kind of like, I knew I couldn't do another image book because I didn't have the mental space for an image book. <laughs> but the Boom is a much more like, um, they have, you know, they do a lot of other stuff, you know, in that way. And it's like, kind of like, I've had a choice of doing like work for hire I think, or a metal book of boom, and like a book of boom is a like a, I'm in, I'm involved in a creator participation kind of way, mm-hmm. uh, and it you know seems when I said this seems stupid not to this seems a fun thing to do, and the thing is I went to it really lightly because I think I was like yeah I'll do it well, I'll do a mini that's a giggle, and then maybe we'll you know and I had ideas for other minis down the line it's like okay the second one's Beer Wolf and the third one's Beer Wolf versus Arthur that's a kind of the you know I had a, some concept and I knew it would end on issue eighteen where, not end but you know I knew that'll be linked to the other world as in and you know there was a part of me for let's just end there and uh leave them trapped england trapped in this mad fantasy world and not, not give them an out uh which might express my feelings at the moment in the uk uh, <laughs> sure um but that was that kind of but the but it landed as well as it did and um it's like yeah why not i mean like, I, had, I had enough time it was really fun to do um and the one thing about Monster Future, it's just all been really very simple, which is completely not what normally happens to me. I'm normally like, I work really, everything's hard. Like, Ludocrats is was so much hard work over 15 years, and, I, and I've lost a huge amount of money doing that book. You know what I mean? Whilst Monster Future is just doing the work. And mm-hmm. wrote the scripts, Dan writes amazing, you know, Dan draws amazing art, and Tamara colours it amazingly, and we fill it in, it goes out, people buy it, they enjoy it, we do it again next month. It's like kind of um, I always feel guilty. It's because I'm somebody who there's something my my psychology somehow believes has to be at least hard to do. It can be enjoyable and rewarding, but like the amount of work, and I think it's occasionally to my works. Um, I think it hurts my work occasionally, as it is my work really goes for it, and that gets a level of density which I think turns off some people. Um, which is obviously I'm, I'm very successful like you know it's obviously not a major problem but I think it's definitely part of my thing and once the future is just not it's me going I did actually I thought why don't I do a book like which I create which feels a bit more like Dr. Afra you know like, so like when I sat down to write Dr. Afra it's like okay let's take these people and go for a spin and have these interesting weirdos fight each other <laughs> and just have fun and like all my fun books have been work for hire books 
you know, and let's, let's do a fun book, which, you know, isn't. <laughs> uh, I know, I, I'm just, I, I, I know I'm aware I sound like an idiot. <laughs> it's just kind of, what, what, why on earth would I do something fun and enjoyable when I could do something really hard work and miserable? <laughs> uh, I mean, how can you not have fun writing, you know, murder C-3PO and murder R2-D2? I mean... Yeah. So, like, so, like, with Once the Future is, like, it was deliberately designed to be indefinite. You know what I mean? Like, I've got a pretty, I've got a firm story going ahead and we'll reach the end of that story. And then it could probably still could continue in a different way. You know, it, like, what's the future was very much, I was aware that this is the probably the first character I've created which feel like, like Spider-Man. You know what I mean? Like Bridget and Duncan are, are there's a dynamic there. They can plug in into adventures. What monsters are they fighting this week? You know, like, I probably don't think I'm wired that way. I think I'm more likely to get to the end and stop. <laughs> but I could. And there is part of me that does go that kind of, what, what can I tickle my fancies next? As in, it definitely is going to make me think like, it, it doesn't have to be hard. And there's stuff you can do which you find entertaining and not like, uh, not insulting to the audience or yourself. You know what I mean? Like for me, I, I've sort of always believed in smart pop. Like, I'm, same, I'm a big pop music guy, as you know, as I think most people know about me. But like my, my favourite pop song is always very smart and very dumb simultaneously. Um, <laughs> And what's the future is that, I think. It's like, oh yeah, this book's read some, you know, he's definitely read some books, but it's as dumb as balls simultaneously. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and that, I don't think that's a contradiction. For me, that's an aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. You actually answered a question that I had there because that end of volume three seemed like a turn. I was like, okay, is this now building towards the end? Because I was like, okay, there's got to be something online. I was like, oh, there's nothing I found that says that, okay, this is building towards like, is there an end game? It's like, okay, there's an end game, but it's a nebulous end game. Yeah. I must say, I also know I could like, it's one of the things where it's got an end game, but I also know where, if I wanted to go next, where I would take it. There's a kind of like, um, that's like, it, that's the thing about the future. There's so many big off area hits. I haven't even touched, you know, I haven't touched Mordred. I haven't hit Morgana. Uh, they're the two big ones, I think. Now, now Guinevere's on the table and there's a, there's a load of lesser characters. Like Yvain turns up in a, issue in a few issues time so uh, you've made the delight because he's one of those he's got a lion you say <laughs> <laughs> it's like what can i do with this oh, dear. um but yeah the, this arc is so much about the, the i just think we should start explaining more stuff is that kind of like all the way along i've known secrets like i know what merlin you know merlin all the way through is like clearly heartbroken that arthur doesn't recognize him like, there's, a, there's a tragedy there and it's one of the weird things about what's future is the villains are so flat you know they're not real people. And that for me is like the longer I hang with them, the sadder that gets. Because they are, they're just like weird ciphers, these story ghosts, which are trapped haunting and killing us. Uh, but the other thing, I think that that's the other side of it. But when you do something that feels very real, like um, any, the argument, like latest issue, the argument between Rose and Bridget, you know what I mean? And uh, then Bridget and Duncan, these feels like these are genuinely human things. And one of my favorite things in the last half was the um, Bridget interrogating the, the uh, far right guy who was dying and like that felt like a oh no this is actual characterizing this feels quite sad and genuine in humor and then the next scene you know you've got the green knight chopping the living hell out of people um but yeah but that's like kind of like sorry what i meant is all that stuff eventually you've got to sort of tell people i think that chrissy was saying this in like die and also wicked uh, so chrissy the editor of wicked uh <laughs> and my wife uh she um when did you get to those issues and it's like you have this moment again. Wait a sec, can we say this? Isn't this a, isn't this a spoiler? <laughs> but you realize, oh no, no, no. You're at the point where you um, you know, do the prestige and reveal everything. Um, yeah. 
and then it's but you know it's then you get there you think okay well the, what from then on uh which is kind of like you know and that can be indefinite i'm not sure it's quite nice to have um things that can be reused like you come to a hard ending and it's a good ending then you think actually if you want to come back to it that's fun i mean it's the opposite of wicked wicked was always you cannot do another panel of that stuff the same with die um obviously you haven't read the end of die yet but i've, I've said that die in the same way phonogram was phonogram was a device to me to talk about music and it was meant to be with that resilient and all that and die is the same you know die hasn't got a wicked close ending die is a device if there are things to talk about the natures of games and fantasy and what we do for them we can use it and as a writer like who's been around the block a few times now having these kind of resilient tools for oh i've got an idea about this i want to think about this i can use this you know what i mean it's quite nice it's like it's like having these things that exist that you can bring to bear um yeah you you'd mentioned uh the idea of of what's in future feeling you know uh I don't say too easy to be reductive, but, you know, uh, a, a shockingly enjoyable experience compared to work that you've put into other books. Do you feel like doing die at the same time where on top of, of writing a comic, you're also crafting uh, effectively a, a, an RPG that you're still working on, uh, you know, at the Kickstarter coming, do you feel like those two sort of balance each other out in terms of, of, of labor? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, I always feel bad about saying something is easy for exactly the reason you danced around it, because it's like, it sounds like you're phoning it in. And it's not, it's just some jobs take an amount of work. And just make them, you know, like, it's just things are different things. <laughs> um, but I do feel weird about it in that way. Um, I, I always say, like, one of the best things about being a comic writer is you can have this mixed diet. Like, I could not do four books like Phonogram <laughs> in a month. But I could, you know, I, it's like I could do a week. What was I doing at the same time? It's like I was doing Avengers, um, not Avengers, uh, Iron Man, Uber, and there might be one more in the mix there. But you know what I mean? They're very different sorts of flavors, and I couldn't write any of that. All I couldn't write all four of them, mm -hmm. four books like that. But the fact I get to tickle different things means that I can do that. Um, so like all the way from my work for hires career at marvel the first time i was explicitly um i'd probably do two books a month uh, two sorry two books at once there one of which is proving i'm not a complete weirdo like as in like oh no no i can do a proper i can do a book that sells people buy the book yeah it's still me but like this is yeah and that's books like uncanny x-men or iron man the idea of this is playing the main stage and the other one is oh no no i am a weirdo like if this book this book is aggressively me so that was like the uh, you know journey to mystery and young avengers and like with Die and What's the Future, it felt a bit like that. You know what I mean? As in Die is the, Die is the one where you're in the, you know, in the gym lifting heavy metal. Uh, just, I've been listening to Lizzo this morning and it's just everything just stuck in my head. Um, there's that. And then there's the other one, which is more fun and more like uh, more classically comics mainstream. Mm -hmm. I think with Die, I mean, Die and What's the Future sell a lot, both. But especially in the field, like you could be very dense and serious or whatever and still sell a lot. <laughs> um, so like they become less about being more or less commercial or being more or less, uh, they're aesthetic. So yeah, they are balanced on it in that way. I mean, like I would feel bad if I just did like everything that was fun, but you, I guess, or maybe, well, maybe it wouldn't, but I think I'm at, in my old age, I'm loosening up a bit, maybe. Is there, is there a, a, a metaphor 
maybe a bad one, in sort of planning your writing projects the way you might plan a, a set list when you're, you're DJing? Oh, I'm not sure. I know what you mean. Set list is, set list is about how they flow into each other. Like, I must say, I don't think it's quite analogous, but I can see why you're reaching it. It does feel more like putting on a festival bill. Okay. You know, okay. like you've got diff different things playing at different stages. You know, like you want to like, a, this is a festival. This is what a place people go to and enjoy. And what bands do you want playing at all those different uh, things? That, the idea of, um, you know, idea of like, I don't want to just have like, I don't know, the Mighty Mighty Bostos playing at all four stages. Uh, just, I don't know why I went to a random scar band. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, that's too many Bostones. That's like, that's like 32 people. Yeah, yeah. It's the Mighty 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 yeah. Bostones. That's a lot of Bostone. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? So like, but there's also a bit of you just go like, what do I want to write next? I mean, there's definitely kind of, um, during um, the pandemic, obviously like, it was hard for everything. Uh, like, mm -hmm. And part of it was, I actually ended up just like, obviously I was where the die was coming to an end and I was sort of thinking, um, you know, I sh I, right now I should be planning my next book. Um, and I haven't really got an idea I want to develop or an idea I don't feel in the place. I've got you know, everyone has ideas, but in terms of the actual, I want to put my back into it. So it's like, no, I don't want it. Um, especially the ones which are heavier lifting. Like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, do the entire 19th century history project. Leave me alone. Um, and I just allow myself to say, don't, don't, you know, um, I've been doing some work and pitching and other media and being paid for that. You know, I, I did, I went back and did some work for hire, which of course is, if everyone's read my Eternals, it's like, no, it's, it's very clear. There's a lot of work in Eternals, mm -hmm. but it's still not what I would do for Die because it's, it's a different sort of work. You know what I mean? So like, I've just allowed myself to sort of go, take a step back and look after yourself this year. And that's a lot about, you know, that's a kind of like, like a festival. I need, I need, I'm aware for myself, I need to have this and I can be kind to myself now, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll, I'll see where I am. Because it's like, I mean, I know me and Stephanie will be doing something after Die. Uh, you know, that idea appeared. You know what I mean? Like uh, in time and, you know, we chewed on. Does that make sense? Yes. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So what considerations would you, or did you go through when bringing a real figure like Boris Johnson into Once in Future? I'm not naming him for a start. Well, right, I was about to say, <laughs> he appears entirely in shadow and you never say his name, but between the silhouette and bringing him in as Boris of the other, it's pretty obvious who you're doing there can you imagine my cackling when i came up with the balls pun <laughs> yeah. uh, it's one of those kind of like, i can't but i am i'm gonna do it and it's sort of you know it's set up like you know 12 14 issues earlier uh, so um i don't i must admit with, with major political figures like that i don't do an enormous amount of thinking like um that's not true I mean, it's like part of it is worth knowing. We, we, I absolutely do what they do in the Marvel comics, as in they have the standing in precedent, but just don't show them. You know what I mean? Like, and uh, so that seems a fair enough way to do it. Um, a lot of the things that Boris, the, the Prime Minister sort of figure, says are things which have been said by Tory MPs. And, you know, the characters, you know, and he's not dissimilar in temperament. Um, but at the same time, it's, um, I'm aware I'm working in the tradition of British 2000 AD. I mean, uh, two thousand. They had, and I just remember as a kid reading um, this entire like uh, 
strontium, strontium dog story, which is about time traveling bounty hunters, uh, and basically had Ronald Reagan as a as the psychic the entire adventure, being a, a complete idiot and like falling over and embarrassing himself as being dragged around by the cool strontium dog. So like, and also like all manner of British government figures get murdered in British like 2000 AD comics. I'm kind of in that tradition, you know, and um, and it's worth knowing, like I don't like I don't whilst you know what it is, it's not like I linger on it you know what i mean like it's something oh yeah i'm doing this <laughs> but at the same time i'm not gonna um actually i'll tell you what i didn't do I, you know if i showed his face it's one of the things oh yeah that could be a newspaper story so in that what i'm really doing is no i'm telling this because i think it's a meaningful story i'm not doing it for the i would like the press mm. you know like um, i think you know it all sort of it all speaks to each other's themes but i'm not in, i'm not that interested in playing it in, you know in fact terrible which is a, a sentence i can never pronounce Certainly, uh, shades subtler than when Mike Runewald had Captain America wrestle a naked lizard man, Ronald Reagan, in 1987 or whatever year that was. That is like, uh, yes. <laughs> um, did you feel like you were working out some kind of uh, national wish fulfillment when the prime minister uh, meets his fate? Oh, no, it, without a doubt, it's, it's um. Well, Nash, like, he voted, got voted in, so it's not everybody. Uh, the um, it was like, very much in the spirit of that mode of like angry Pat Mills 2008. You know, what I mean, it's that kind of moment and that kind of like, oh yeah, they're going to do this. Um, that, that weird excitement in terms of, oh yeah, this is transgressive and dumb as balls. Uh, but you know, to, to use the aesthetic term I've, I've coined earlier, <laughs> um. We're going to make this an RPG system. You have two stats. One stat is read some books. The other stat is dumb as balls. And you have to roll against the two of them. Um, Play yeah. that game. I'm actually going to write. I'm going to get Grant, uh, Grant Howitt on the phone and say, Grant, I've got your game for next month. Uh, so a quick plug for Grant Howitt's uh, one-page RPGs. Uh, yeah. One everyone knows is Honey Heist. But like, they're all really good. I have run Honey Heist. Uh, it is what, I've read a couple of them there's oh another one with uh, superheroes on their day off that was delightfully fun that's name is now completely eluding me that I ran that is a ton of fun so uh, the oh, um, sexy battle wizards Chrissy's ran which is delighted by uh, the one last one I ran was uh, called nice marines nice marines is basically warmer 40k space marines who are dropped on a planet but unfortunately like the war's over and they've got to basically rebuild the governments uh, through a series of disasters uh, and but sadly the only abilities they have involve mass death and killing people so the main thing is anytime they do something they have to roll on the die they roll the dice and depending on what they're good at by which i mean incredibly powerful and dangerous gives you higher numbers so for example if you've got your d20s your best time if you roll anything like plus 15 it's like mass death but the four lads you can see but there is mass death and you know uh, so the whole thing is these well-meaning but incompetent death machines trying to actually solve a, a situation so it's a very black comedy uh but it worked really well i enjoyed it enormously oh i need to that would work very well with my group i know yeah. <laughs> so, the way i run it is basically we run it as a day so like every in the morning everyone gets to do something then in the afternoon they get to do something then they get together together in the evening to plan what they're going to try next day to solve the problems uh and then they repeat oh um, on saturday the um uh the imperium comes to investigate uh so uh, not investigate as in like oh i've seen you know you've you finished your work and it's like yes everything's definitely not on fire oh, it's, it's just the man with the flame on um <laughs> anyway i was off the oh killing uh boris johnson um yeah the um no i probably got past that <laughs> it's just a pop it's a pop thrill you know what i mean it's like um there's a 
I mentioned 2000 AD a lot, it's, and now there's a lot of 2000 AD in uh, What's the Future, as mm -hmm. it, it's got that kind of energy. Um, and that kind of like tongue in cheek playful transgressiveness. It's like, I want to take that personally. Even if I was Boris, I wouldn't take that personally. Even though clearly, like, there's not, you know, I am, there is a political anger in the strip. I think that's undeniable. <laughs> I just remember I was trying to, when I was hyping it early on, uh, I, saw, I said that, you know, people ask me about the issue of nationalism a lot and understandably so. And I downplayed it. And I downplayed it not because it's not there, but not because it's, um, this isn't Mouse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you come expecting a Joe Sacco book, this is just not that book. It, um, but at the same time, it's very clearly about nationalism. I remember like, I was in the pub the next day, Ram said, you know, you said it wasn't about, um, <laughs> you know, you said it wasn't about nationalism. You completely lied there, Kieran. I was like, maybe a little, Ram, a little. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you just don't want to sell something under false pretenses. Just out of curiosity, having binged through volume three in the first couple of issues of uh, the next volume, have you seen A24's Green Knight, the no. film? No, it's not been out in the UK. Ah, then oh. I will say no more other than I really enjoyed it. And I'm curious to see what you think of it once you do see it. <laughs> it's literally just immediately appeared on Amazon Prime today with no warning for free. So like, I might be watching it tonight. It's this kind of like, everyone, basically everyone in the UK on Twitter is going, Amazon, you know, Green Night Day. Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited. You know, it uh, looks absolutely my jam. Excellent. Uh, so we've talked about uh, Dan Mora, your, your artistic collaborator uh, on this book. Um, you have to sh you have to share him right now with uh, the Detective Comics Comics Corporation, uh, where he is pretty well in demand. Uh, how are you guys structuring production to accommodate Dan's uh, very busy schedule? Uh, I must say the, the, the latest details would have to talk to Boom about, but basically um, we were way we were considered significantly ahead, mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know we had like a two to three month gap between things, and that's mm -hmm. like you know I imagine there'll be a short gap before the next arc as well. But that kind of like, I think this, I think Boom said there would be eight issues this year. I think that was what they said. So like, Dan's also quick. That's why like, and also I don't, clearly there's going to be like schedules and gaps or whatever, but he's mm -hmm. weirdly quick because they're doing how beautiful his work is. And I must I worry about it uh, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it is planning and uh, it is based around planning, which of course, is, as I said earlier, it's like, what, if I was reading my book at Image, that would be my problem. <laughs> <laughs> and as it is, no, just write the scripts and hand them in. Like I've written up to issue 24, and he's on issue, what's he on right now? 22, I think. Hmm. Yeah. I need to plot the next arc soon, actually. Um, and, and, and by the way, I was absolutely uh, tickled when I saw that he had drawn the cast of Hot Fuzz into issue 10. That was that was delightful. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't my... That, actually, I said... Uh, I, I think I said fuzz, Hot Fuzz types. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it was all kind of like broadly, you know, the that you know i said earlier they said there's actually hot fuzz is referencing the dialogue earlier yeah um and that's like kind of like when it actually was hot fuzz it's like all right okay i did actually mention to like boom oh, is or is this, is this okay and then they said it actually is so like they, they worked it out and i'm pretty sure like simon pegg would find it hilarious mm -hmm. um but yeah that kind of that part of the world was just the idea of the hot fuzz coming in and eating by grendel's mum uh that's a joy <laughs> next up uh you are writing eternals for Marvel, which is, you know, due to hit cinemas here in the States in a little over a month. Uh, we talked earlier about, you know, questions about things being research heavy and such. What is the research for something like Eternals? Because the Eternals have a wide and 
wild history with different creators going in all sorts of directions with these. Uh, did you cherry pick what you wanted to reference or dive in and take a sort of synthesis of all of these varied versions of the characters? I mean, the one sentence way I've described what I tried to do is I'm trying to turn continuity into mythology. Like the interesting thing about like, not the interesting thing about Eternals, one of the interesting, weird things about the job of writing Eternals is they've been around for a long time. And there are, there are as you said, there are, there are these runs and bits in various books, but there's not like they've been constant, you know, constant figures. There's probably like less than a hundred like Eternal comics. I mean, certainly like in terms of actual comics with the name Eternals on the cover, distinctly less than that. Um, so the core canon is quite small, but they also touch in different places. You've got the Uranian stuff, you've got the Titan stuff, you've got like all this. So I, my job, and my job, I mean, one of the parts of the job I felt like, I wanted to make it feel like Tolkien wrote it. And I don't mean like overwritten. <laughs> what I mean, <laughs> uh, what I mean is, like, you know, it's been born of one breath. The idea, so I'm looking at, okay, these are the major events in Eternal's history. Let's make them into as big a events as the fall of the angels and Christian theology. You know what I mean? Like, the, you know, Uranus's rebellion, that was, this is important. And, you know, and I, I plot the timeline and work out what's, what the big events. And I also, it's kind of like, and the other side is like, okay, all this stuff is there. How can I try to square these things? How can I take stuff which respects and take, nods them? Well, entirely admits that they are all contradictory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's the, um, I mean, Gaiman's, the Eternals are around for X million of years, is entirely, cannot be squared with the Eternals have got multiple generations who have, you know, lived for 20,000 years and the, the time just doesn't work. So you, for me, I, I chose one and then worked out a way, like, what I did, I chose the game and what because I think Eternals being Eternal is most interesting. The idea that they're just slow-lived people, like that turns them into another one of the Marvel Universe's godlike species, which are always less interesting than the gods. So, like, how can step back to another level? I do a lot of my job is how can I make the Eternals as distinct as possible? You know, like, um, I've said this a few times, so I'll, I'll say it quickly. But the um, the, the Eternals weren't born in the Marvel Universe. That's the other problem. And their thing was, you know, these are aliens creature creatures created by alien space gods who were mistaken for gods on earth and therefore born our religions and uh, mythologies um which is like chariots of the god 1970s stuff and of course when you move on to the marvel universe where there are actually gods it doesn't immediately the eternals are less interesting because you know you've got this guy who was mistaken for hercules and then you got actual hercules <laughs> you know <laughs> like and there's really good stories people have done about how they square those two stories but they still end up diminishing the eternals um, so anything that makes them more is better for me. So I mean, it's okay, especially like I went back to the original Kirby. Kirby says the hundred deviants, a hundred Eternals, and that's great. Like, okay, that's a good number. That's a hundred. <laughs> if there's a hundred Eternals, there's only a hundred Eternals. That's interesting. Immediately you got, and then I do that whole graph and I plot them and I research all the Eternals I can and take them all and then make up the other forty-five or whatever it was. Um, and have rough ideas for most of them. Actually, no, I've got. I've got a, this is what they are, but at the same time, also leave it open if someone else wants to jump in and say, Hey, this random character has not been shown yet. I can use them for this. So, like, these, I'm going multiple things. So, like, I talked about the continuity and mythology part, and that the other part is like something that's useful for other creators. As in, this is, um, I mean, streamlined probably isn't the right word, but this is a coherent body of work you can look at and go, Oh, right, this makes sense, or at least it makes sense in its own terms. Um, I mean, it's like, like the, I mentioned the generation thing as an idea, because that, that was definitely an idea in Eternals. Like you had um, people like 
Uranus being first generation Eternals, you know, people like Zuras being second generation and so on. Um, and I've actually kept those generations. So I've got the idea the families were just appeared at the start. You know what I mean? So like you have generations, but they, it's not generations the way we have them. It's just these are eternal families. That's in families. So many angels were created in the same way the universe is. These, you know, I'm always the grandfather. I'm always the father. I'm always the son. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are eternal relationships or like platonic even. Um, and it's just a different way of doing family. And then I also square stuff like the times the Eternals have bred with humans. There's a, I mentioned that in passing in the Phanos rising thing, Nephilites, because the only way to, to properly do Eternals is take a word and change it slightly. So um, using the Nephilim and riffing on that. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to make them intri- like really, everything that makes them weird, I lean into. And it's like, and, and I think actually, and I'm hoping it makes them tragic. Because for me, the Eternals' tragedy is these are beings of enormous power who are trapped in a system they literally cannot change. And to us, I think we all feel like that sometimes. You know what I mean? Like the Eternals are, are you know, they're quite inhuman at times. But at the same time, the ones we like, we recognise that. And they're, they're us, but more so. Um, you know, as in, they have all problems of, can we actually change? And they're like, no, we can't. A space god put this in my head. Um, you know, and but that's sad. Uh, especially when when you hit issue six we i do the big this is the other big part yep. i say i'm gonna answer all your questions i say i did a few interviews about eternals so if you want to answer about actually matt you can jump with a question and that allows us to actually pretend this is a conversation well it's <laughs> it's kind of hilarious because the next question is specifically about the big reveal in issue six it's like um, we planned it yep because the big reveal at the end of issue six was a gut punch uh spoilers for anyone who hasn't read that far uh every time an eternal dies they have to take the life force of a human to return where did that idea come from in a time where resurrection seems even cheaper than usual in comics especially thanks to the krakoa paradigm was this a way to give weight to immortality in this way in a, a few varieties because i mentioned like my problem with the eternals as an uh, this, is sort of, this is sort of document that rarely ever comes out. But I said my big kind of, this is what I think, this is what I want to do with the Eternals, this is what I think the problem is. And one of them is the stuff I described earlier about the, the stuff that leads to be, instead of treating them like gods, to treat them like angels. I think that's the hole in the, in, that's the hole in the Marvel Universe. That's the niche they can fill. And the other reason why I felt that the, Mar- that the um, Eternals sat badly in the Marvel Universe is they lack the fundamental Peter Parkerness. Like, there's it's not really a downside to being Eternal. You know, these are just like species. But the, for me, the like the, the real thing about Marvel Universe is, whilst I can doll back because this is this is one of my standard rants, and it's best to do it completely. Like for me, most of the iconic DC heroes are based upon the idea that the world is the problem, and the world is a corrupt thing they have to engage with. So, Batman's life was great, then went to down crime alley, dead parents. I will now do this wonder woman comes from a paradise comes to you know the, the fallen world of man as a redeemer uh what's the marvel thing they the world is still fallen but they are also the problem you know like tony stark is an arms dealer and you know eventually alcoholic and all the you know and uh compare contrast like wonder woman and four like they both have very similar plots they both come to earth to help us but four is sent to earth because he's an arrogant dipshit <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah, I mean, that's the fundamental marvelness. You are the problem and you have to overcome that or, or weigh into it. Uh, and Peter Parker is why he, Peter Parker is the, I think, the, the most marvel of all marvel heroes in the, um, the Uncle Ben. You know, it doesn't matter what he does, there's always Uncle Ben. Uh, and the Eternals lack an Uncle Ben. They lack a fundamental sadness they can't escape. 
And that's the thing that led me to the cost of their life. So if they're eternal, why are they eternal? And I thought it was something quite simple. We've seen them die. And the idea of like something basic that, oh yeah, when they die, the machine has to use a human life to ignite and get them back up again. And it's something they don't know about. And it's and what I most and it's a cost. They've got a late, I mean, I've just been letter, doing a lettering draft on Eternal Seven, and you've got all of you're seeing Icarus dealing with this. You know, as in he like, what on earth can I do? And obviously Icarus is a hero. And that's the real reason why Icarus had to be the lead in the first arc is because Icarus is a sweet, not sweetheart. Icarus is good. He's a very classic hero. I'm doing quotes here, which are useless in podcast, you know? <laughs> so it would hit him hardest, you know, like, because he's got very, he's a very simple guy. And it's like, oh, and even worse, my ability to sacrifice has hurt other people. And that's a gut wrench. And it doesn't matter if they turned off the machine tomorrow, you know, all these heroes, the good heroes would still realize they are they have a debt to humanity they need to repay um but what i also like about the idea i say in passing most eternals don't care it's like you know um yeah humans they die you know it's like come on they're, they're around for like 70 years or so uh there's a line which in the in issue seven which is um one of the slightly more ethically questionable it's what eternals goes um come on there's barely a billion of them 100 years ago and now there's all you know there's eight million of them come on you know who, who really who really cares i can't believe you bothered and that's what that's why they're bad guys <laughs> you know what i mean like things which are a problem for heroes are not necessarily a problem for other people um but to sort of so that was it so can i give them a piece of park of it that was one the other one was like i think part of behind of john's thinking on the x-men um was that, you know, people, we don't treat death seriously in comics because, you know, uh, we dolled it back so many times. So John was, let's just take it off the table for a while. Let's do it. Well, let's assume that it can die as much as we want. <laughs> and then see, let's see what comics look like. You know what I mean? And it's absolutely been fascinating, the X-Line, and I, I've loved watching it. But it did sort of me think from a different angle in terms of, okay, how can we make, with the Eternals, that's the, the interesting thing about what that change does is it puts it puts uh, pressure on the table again. Like, um, yeah, you know, we're not going to kill Icarus or Cersei or whoever in the movies. <laughs> you know, they'll probably they'll probably come back, but this this human character we've introduced won't. You know what I mean? Like the um, you could you can put guns to other characters' heads <laughs> and be more convincing than you can to Spider-Man. So that kind of like removing, and of course this is also real classic, I mean it's, it is classic Spider-Man stuff, isn't it? I can't, I can't do this or Aunt May will not have, I don't know, jam or whatever. You know, that kind of, that. Um, that's the other side, so it's a different way of getting tension. Because you can just, I can just, because they'll be, I mean, from now on, Icarus's whole thing is, not whole thing, but one of his things is learning to fight without being punched in the face as much. You know, and that's there's some great scenes of him trying to learn how to do this stuff. Um, but yeah, does all that make sense? Like, yes, that's kind of that was oh, yeah. kind of the, they're yeah. the they're the few main ones, and it's so weird because the part, especially with higher, I view myself as a problem solver. As in, I look at stuff and go, how can I make this better? As in, how can I make this more suitable for the task we want it to do? And as well, you know, in this case, it's like you put a gut punch. You know that kind of, and also though, I see the other thing I really like about. The idea and that's why i really like this and it's just sad you know it's really it's a big emotion you know and you get it as in like the reader gets it the characters get it, it, it it's meaningful and it's you know it's cool and it's a book about eternal life you know and uh, the cost heroin and all that uh so uh first of all r.i.p toby robson but uh <laughs> so uh you've kind of done something with eternals that you've done with 
you know, with Div and with other books where you, you've got these, these uh, specials kind of in between arcs. So there was just Thanos Rises just came out. There's another one uh, with the Olympian mutants or Olympian uh, Eternals uh, coming up, excuse me. Uh, a Celestian, um, actually. Celestian, thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, you know, how did you uh, end up kind of developing that idea with the specials uh, for this here at Marvel, you know, was this, uh, you know, did it start as a tool to give Isad Ribic a break uh, and then go from there? You know, what was, what was the thinking? Uh, yes. Yes. And yes is the answer. Uh, the, um, it was like, at least doing Eternals is like a, few, a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, I did a book called Peter Cannon and Peter Cannon was at least in part an attempt to discover if I still wanted to write superhero comics because mm-hmm. I'd stopped a few years before that. Because I was burning out, I, I I was aware I was approaching burnout, and then I did other stuff for a few years, and it was like, okay, let's try this and see how it feels. And I liked it; it was fun. I felt I'd actually refreshed. And Eternals, to some degree, was me coming back from the books like Die and, and Wake Dave, and using some of the skill set I we built up there and applying it to a Marvel book. So yeah, absolutely, the kind of um, bits of design stuff and bits of um, like the scale and the specials were a useful device when doing. The Eternals world building. I've described this enormous history. I was like, I've done this stuff, but I didn't do it to include. I did this to have a sense of that everything's bigger than the page. You know, the idea that um, this stuff is there. If we head off in any direction, I have stuff for you. <laughs> um, so, I obviously I hope to do stories about this because I, you know, I've got lots of ideas. But like, it's not necessarily what the story is. It allows me to select the material. And in the case of like doing the specials, it was, um, yeah, let's let's give Esad more time. You know, Esad takes time. That's what he is. He's like, he's, you know, he, he, he's, he's Esad Ribic. Look at, look at the fucking art. Uh, <laughs> um, so the idea of doing like, so watch, you know, if you want to like increase the scale, we didn't want to do like fill-in issues. That was the important thing. We want to yeah. have volumes of Esad and like, so it feels like that. So there's going, uh, going elsewhere, I felt the logical thing. So, uh, Darren, Darren's the editor. Um, I've got an idea to sort of specials, and obviously, yes. And it's a question of like, I sort of like, we could do this one first, and then this one, you know. So it's like the Phanos Rising one felt like the logical one. Because obviously, Phanos is in the story in the same way that, um, and of course, it's not, it's about Phanos, but it's really about the, the Titan schism. So it's really about Eternal's breeding. And that's like that. So it's that whole kind of period there. Um, uh, and in the same way, when we're doing Wictiv, I was doing the same thing. I said, okay, I've got all these historical stories. Which one is the best one to do at this point in the story? You know what I mean? So like, and each one, in, like, each one of those specials introduced an idea, which if you're reading the main story, is of interest and immediate use. But also, you can get by without it. Like, that's the thing is like, I want to make people want to read the extra stuff, not have to. Like, if we need to, you know, the important stuff in the books will be reintroduced. And trust I really want everyone to read them all. I think it's, I, you know, same with Wicked. I think you should read it all. But that kind of like the promise of what, you know, the promises of issue one to twelve does imply you should be able to read issues one to twelve. Um, oh, that's so. The first and the second one's the same. Like, actually, that was a really useful because it solved the problem of my book because um, Macaray and Ajax, obviously two very important Eternals, and I couldn't fit them in the first arc. Like I was going to put them in issue, my original plan was issue six, probably. That was like, we'll do the Celestians in issue six. But at the more I got into the arc, I realized, no, I need to just spend my time. Um, the plots take, the plots got big enough. I need the space. So I'll kick them back to probably the second arc. And then it's like, 
oh, we actually have a special. Um, so doing a special which introduces them, but also introduces Celestia, as in the whole city of the space gods. And also introduces, it does some really fun stuff with like the early, um, when they were first on Earth, like when they were, they arrived in one billion, not one billion, one million years ago. Mm-hmm. So where else do we get the uh, Jason's Eternals of one billion, sorry, one million years ago? So we get to do stuff with that. So that kind of like, and we get, you know, for me, it was just a really, that special achieved so much about let's meet Ajax and Makari and give them the space they deserve. And then they, they turn up in the second arc quite quickly as well. So, which is a, a nice arrival. And then, you know, they haven't announced any, that if we do another one, there's, there's, you know, there's, you know, just, I could do specials probably indefinitely, you know, because there's, there's so much other stuff that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's four, I think, I think there's four core ones I would like to do at least. Like um, Uranus is the, um, you know, the, the original like war between the, the patriarchs. Like Uranus is a really interesting guy. Mm-hmm. Um, like Phanos is grand uncle. So like, and he's a monster. Um, and then there's also, the other one I'd really like to do is about uh, the city of Titanos, the city, the, the, uh, the one that Kronos uh, destroyed when he became Kronos, the space god. Mm-hmm. Like that's one I really want to do as well. Cause that's, you've got the, on the sheet, you've got all those names, the evocative names, you've got the, the Titanus hermits. Um, and I really want to write those characters like Blind Orla, uh, the Silvered Bride of Heaven and Scab. They're kind of like, um, I was just, they, they are, you get, a, obviously you don't know anything about them other than the names, but the names are pretty evocative, I think. As in they go, mm-hmm. oh, right, they've got something going on. Um, but in the issue seven, I, I said we're just sending to press at the moment. Um, you get a little bit of character work. You get a kind of one of those big diagrams and it, it just describes, just in one small caption, describe this guy interviewing them and what they do. And you immediately, and I'm kind of, I'm also just, I don't, I wrote that all two months ago and I read it today and I was like, oh, right, yeah, I'm quite excited by this. Like, <laughs> people, people are going to read this. And I bet the funniest bit is literally at the start, someone goes, of course, before I was implying that, oh, yeah, you already know that Blind Ball is going to be like this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> anyway. That's fantastic. Um, uh, in your newsletter, you had mentioned parallels between Thanos Rises and uh, the packed issue of Kirby's New Gods. Uh, you know, the, and the interesting thing about this run on Eternals is that while the Eternals are, are very Kirby characters, I don't, I don't see a ton of Kirby in this. Uh, you know what I mean? It, it's very, it's very much a Kieran Gillen in the Sagrada comic. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not homaging Kirby directly. Uh, but, you know, I was curious, do you feel like uh, Kirby weighs heavy on the book as you're making it? You know, does he feel like a presence when you're writing? I'm like, obviously, I'm very different to Kirby as a writer. Yeah. Um, uh, but like, I, I, I put uh, in my scripts. It was created by uh, created by Jack Kirby in the script. Yeah. You know, that's like kind of. It's not just like a design page thing. I'm explicit, and I don't think I've ever done that with a comic before. Like when I'm writing like Spider Man, I don't write you know uh, Lee and Ditko. You know, mm-hmm. not not if I've ever written Spider Man, but you know, actually once in that Spider Man. Hulk versus Spider-Man 4 comic. But you know what I mean? Like, it's not my traditional thing to do. And that I actually, you know, did it this time was explicit. I was coming in thinking, I am p- trying to pick up the work done by Jack Kirby here. And like, mm-hmm. it's very different. Obviously, there were many other creators who've touched the Eternals, but like, that was one of my four, looking at it and trying to look at, okay, I'm not him, but I'm trying to build on the ideas which are implicit here. 
and it's like kind of um i said the 100 you know they make 100 100 and it's like well i'm going to lean into the 100 of it because that's what it says and um even the nature of change i mean the thing about you know kirby he creates this situation where these are uh, people who are eternally at war and then the pretty much the first thing he does is make good make good deviants <laughs> you know and like he gets with you know that kind of immediately recognizes that this is some this set up some bullshit <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> um so that and especially the other thing about like, eternals i find interesting because even more than new gods it feels like it's unfinished it feels unfinished as because he's eternals is still being introduced as he goes through it <laughs> you know like um um so yeah i must yeah i try to pick up as much as i can from the books um and i'm sort of cheering and there's, and there's moments of sheer scale and power like we've got the uni mind in a future issue you know we've got like i would i'm deliberately thinking about like what the effect of Kirby is through a very different aesthetic. Um, yeah, as it weighs on my mind, I decide, you know, I said it's absolutely something I think about often, but I'm not, <laughs> but I'm, as I agree with you, I'm not sure how much people would realize and think about it often. I mean, it's one of these things like, actually, it's a good, I often think people, um, you know, like, I regularly think when doing work for hire, and this is a very self serving quote, it's the, and I've said other people say it in different ways, it's like, what would Jack Kirby do? What Jack Kirby would do is make something else up, you know, like, and that's yeah. something I think about a lot in my work for hire, as in that kind of, I'm not big in, I mean, I know this is kind of a book which is built on other bits in the past, but it's still aggressively making a lot of stuff up. And it is also making a lot of stuff up about the stuff in the past as well, you know? Mm-hmm. So the idea of like the, um, uh, the aggressive thrust of novelty, um, that's certainly there, hopefully. I mean, that's what I aspire to anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I read that this was Clayton Cowell's first time doing interior design in addition to lettering. Uh, he's got, he's quite good at it. First of all, uh, mm. you know, you've, you've worked with Clayton a bunch uh, over various books over the years. You know, was this a ta- challenge that he was looking to take on or had you come to him and just said, Hey, I've got a crazy idea. Data pages. <laughs> uh, no, I was always data pages. It's that kind of like the, that kind of, I mean, yeah, if you actually go back and mainly books, I've been doing stuff like this for a long time. It's just that now that I can get mold to do it for me, <laughs> like, well, I get, you know, well, like, you know, this is now a possibility in a book that makes sense. And, you know, I think, and, you know, I'm very grateful for John creating the space to allow it. And I think some of the stuff we do with Eternals is quite different. You know what I mean? For me, it's always like you can do stuff with text and image in a very different way. And I, I want to run with that, um, especially in a book with Eternals, at least part of the joy is the density of it. As in, oh no, here's, there's ideas all over the place. Um, so I, I was already, data pages were for me a firm part of the pitch, especially because the machine is such a big part of the book, but that's a completely different train of conversation. Um, and that's probably one worth talking about at some point. Um, no, I think we were talking about you know various designers to do it. And then uh, Darren suggested, oh, Clayton's interested. So it's, I think it's just something that Darren was talking to Clayton about. And I was like, I'm, I'm all for it. Like, I've worked hand in glove with Clayton for like over a decade now. Mm-hmm. It's over a decade, close to a decade at least. Um, and like you know, he, we've gone through some any random nonsense I've thrown at him. He's he's done. So like, if he wants to try it, yeah, I'm I'm all for it. And it, the stuff he's doing is really great. You know, it absolutely speaks to the kind of um, I would say something that was sort of uh, future classicism was almost like obviously Tron's the reference I used, but that kind of like um, ancient mainframes, which kind of the idea of like. 
how if you've ever seen an asteroids cabinet asteroids cabinets are based upon is it plasma screen not plasma screens it's um lasers there's a special way that um asteroid cabinets work it's not a modern like tv screen approach mm-hmm. um and it looks like nothing else like you can't get it in video because if you watch it on a tv screen it's doing it through the tv <laughs> so you're not seeing it. it it is a physical thing and a lot of my younger hipster friends i take them to an arcade and show them asteroids they're kind of blown away by it because it looks oh yeah that's something else i have not seen before so it feels like old magic that's kind of what i was looking for in terms of the eternals pages the idea that something that feels like ancient technology but also not something we just don't have anymore because the thing about those asteroid screens they're very expensive and they don't you know they just don't make them anymore mm-hmm. uh, so yeah that was this sort of goal and i think clay and went i mean you know it did stuff like the, the double page spread full of like deviant names you know, and Clayton didn't punch me. Also, sorry, the person really oh. got there was a proofreader that Marvel's got like a proofreader and they've got to check everything and also a standards and practice to make sure nothing's like sweary. Um, and they had to go through it all. And also, like, due to a confusion, like, I, I programmed the deviant name generator, mm-hmm. like, uh, like it, it can generate as many deviant names as you like. Um, we're still trying to get around to working out to release it. Um, <laughs> but it can actually, I sent it to export like a thousand, like, 1600 names um but i did what wasn't clear to clayton so clayton actually was t- taking 10 at a time but if you're doing it 10 at a time it doesn't check they're all repeating so there were some repeats in there and that meant yeah. the, the proofread it was like the world's biggest like <laughs> puzzle as in to try to avoid repeats uh and there was a lot there uh but i, I tell you that was one of those bits i was so pleased with the response to it because like um i did i was thinking this is something only me it's only me and no one else is going to care about because I think this is really cool <laughs> and also really <laughs> impressive and lots of hard work. And uh, but there's other stuff I've done, in, especially in Wicked, where people have kind of not realised how much insane work it was, and they've sort of just gone past it without realising it. Um, and I thought it was going to be one of the ones like that, but no, no, everyone, the, the Twitter went wild in terms of like tag yourself, <laughs> you know, uh, which is like jobs are good. <sighs> Uh, so very quickly, uh, I don't want to linger on this one, but, uh, you just wrapped die, uh, at image, uh, issue 20 just came out. Um, I kind of want to just really quickly touch on the RPG and how that's coming along because there is a Kickstarter in the, in the near future, correct? That's the plan. Uh, I, we've partnered with, um, uh, a delightful indie RPG company. who have got a lot of experience in the space. Uh, in fact, we've got a link to a kind of like. Maybe the Kickstarter, you know, the, the Kickstarter do the kind of remind me of this launch page. Yes. That hopefully be ready by Wednesday, in which case, hopefully the link will work on Wednesday. If okay. not, we'll go somewhere else, which will be useful. But there's a link in the final issue that will that take people to it. Plan at the moment is November. Okay. I do, <laughs> listeners, I've just done a gesture, which is optimistic shrugging. <laughs> Kieran just did the shrug emoji. Yeah, it's like... Yeah uh but then it's like i think it's a lot it's one of the weird things like yeah i've still got some stuff to do with it but at the same mm-hmm. time it's like it's almost now the opposite it's now editing like it's just far too long now i like there's too much i don't want to put all this in a book it's kind <laughs> of like because it's one of the things about rule you know writing rpgs is all about rem, rem, you know removing stuff as well as adding stuff it's one of the things like even ex- some of the stuff early on i think i in fact this is kind of like when, when people read the rules when they're out there one of the things I did in like betas, which people can go through. So I do a lot of, oh, you can do it like this, you can do it like this. And it's like, I'm just trying to be like all too compliant and friendly. Because in, in reality, you say all those, you can do it like this. In reality, people don't remember any of them and they're confused and, they, and they're picking up different things. What you really need to do is just do it like this. Uh, and then if they don't want to do it like that, they won't. 
<laughs> you know, that's okay, because that's what GMing is. Because I, I was like, what the, the publisher and designer of this company, don't, it's like you're trying to teach people to GM too much. Like, and I'm trying to like give, I don't want any problems to hit play at the GM running it. But it's like, well, that's going to happen and they'll be fine. That's that's my part of the job. Um, but we did it like they're kind of the core, the kind of most simple form of dye is actually not simple, compressed form of dye. We've got a really simple thing that will work. And, you know, you go for this and it's flexible in lots of ways, but it'll, if you're going to play dye, this will give you a good experience. And most people only play any game once, really. Like, but I, I want to give you the best possible experience. You can get. If you're going to play one game, I'll make it a good one. Um, but then the rest of the book is, I describe it like a spice cabinet metaphor or like every ingredient metaphor, like the actual core rule, the core rule section, which is all includes the, the core scenario, sidebars. So it's like the sidebar. So, hey, this, this bit allows you to generate a group of friends like this. If, you've got, if you want to generate friends in a different way, have a look at chapter XYZ or, you know, that kind of like, so the, the, core, so the, the core rules acts as a kind of like choose your own adventure almost in terms mm-hmm. of like, okay, this is good. This is rock solid. But if you want to try this stuff over here through this door, you will find a best tree full of interesting monsters, you know? Um, and also like some of the quirkiness can, can work its way in there as well. Um, it's like the rules are a little bit fat in the beta. Um, so in, in the kind of draft that people end up seeing is I'm a lot more to the point and the quirk and some of the quirkiness gets moved, you know, to the supplementary material. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, there's so much stuff in the game, which people haven't seen yet. Um, uh, and the other fun is, as I said, I'll be removing stuff. So it's like, I've got other stuff down the line we might do. It's like kind of like, what does the game need to be in a release? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've, I've ended up something I'm really happy with. Um, how you, We've already kind of talked about like uh, projects and, and their complexity versus how fun they are. Um, you know, has making this game, like what's been sort of the balance between business and pleasure here? Not, it's been mostly because it's, it's, it's like a side. I feel the fact it has, I mean, it's going about to become a, a much bigger job in terms of like deadlines to become very real in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been really fun. I mean, mostly like the stuff I've written, I've only written because like, I've wanted to. <laughs> and I said, like, I said, like, like, oh, I'm going to do this section now. And the section which is boring, I just don't write. <laughs> uh, and to us, like, they're mostly written now. But even then, like you find, I, a lot of the thing is me finding an angle to mm-hmm. want, um, you know, finding an angle to make it worth doing. I tell you, mm-hmm. it's one of the last classic things to be written uh, and exists in a draft now, and I'll probably be adding more and more to it as we go uh, closer to like release. Is the best tree? And, like a best tree is one of these things which you you think it's like kind of, you know, like that must that's fine the problem with die is a lot of the, the game is really about deconstructing other monsters so i don't want to give you like a prussian steel dragon i want you to work out a way to do create creatures which are meaningful for your characters and like not just like i'm not in like vague fluffy ways as in hey do this and you'll get something really cool so the way the best tree worked, the angle we came up with is i've ended up like select this is fun uh, I found someone on someone Reddit did the the most average fancy. They went through a load of fancy vestries and RPGs, and these are the these are the most commonly in them. Yes, yeah, so and these are the most derivative standard monsters in an RPG. Okay. Uh, like, the, and I took, I've done stats for all the top the ones which are over fifty percent. I've done stats for them all, mm-hmm. which is fine. But what the interest so and it's deliberately done. These are just 
standard monsters. But the bit that's extra is I've got a load of notes on them and they are basically deconstructionary notes. As in, these are statements are true about this creature. And they are basically ways to focus your thought on what are they really? Like, what is a dragon? A dragon is bigger than you. A dragon breathes fire. Dragons are often metaphors to Satan. Dragons appear in many mythologies and etc. ways. Um, you know, and do this to all the creatures. Like minotaurs are, you know, are born of, you know, minotaurs are, are, have balls heads and live in labyrinths. Minotaurs are abused children. You know, minus, you know what I mean? Like, that, that's just, so there's a mix, and there's a mixture of like ghosts are woo. You know, there's, there's, there's a mix between jokes and like statements which are true for just the, the game mm -hmm. and things which are much more analytical and ways to think about stuff. I mean, like, I just like the bottom level person in a Kluger's clan is a ghoul. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like there's these, and nowadays, like, as well as having the really basic stats, here are like ways to think about them. And like, you look and think, are any of these relevant to my game? You know, is, is there a way, and I saw, there's a there's a quick guide, how do you, some, a beginner's guide to deconstruction and subversion. You know, the idea of like, okay, ways to make you think about these new creatures, these creatures in a slightly different way, and is, is that relevant to you? Um, which is, well, that's fun. You know, suddenly it's become something which was not interesting to me, to something that is, oh yeah, this is interesting, because it's basically, Treating you tools to do something interesting, and like one of the one of the things about Die, we did um, a load of interviews in the back. Alex Roberts, who is an amazing designer, and she designed for the Queen, but she also did this um, series of interviews with uh, indie developers, like this great podcast of like interviewing all the big minds in the last decade, really. Um, and she sort of said like one of the we get really hung up in our society in the idea of creation, like the idea of creation being this very distant thing. And one of the things about RPGs do is RPGs show how creation is incredibly easy. As in creation, you know, we have as all these stories inside us, and it's very easy to let them out with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something fundamentally democratic and egalitarian about RPGs. And at least part of Die is me is me trying to show how do you make a story like Die? As in, like, I mean, the basic game for anyone who's listening doesn't get it's basically just what the comic does. So first thing you do, you generate a group of people, real world people, with their own flaws and making them, you know, real and human and funny, and they loves and hates and losses. Mm -hmm. You take them, make them create their RPG characters, and then they get dragged into a game and very rapidly transform into the characters they've just designed, who are like one of the die archetypes. And the point being is they are flawed, and then they, do they go home or not? It's the same way as a thing. But the world they're going through is all about their losses and it tempts them because the, the world gives them things they can't have in real life. But it's also about the things they're missing. And it's like, what, what is their psychological damage? And it's in the same way, um, it's an externalization of internal psychological um, problems or locks, lacks. And this sounds very, um, very serious. Um, but at the same time, it's no more serious than diets. You know, you can have all that kind of emotional stuff, but you can also have it like, oh, and then I can kill an orc. <laughs> you know, uh, and that all this stuff goes together. Um, but like the way the game is designed and structured and teaches people, it, you, you'll get a pretty solid narrative arc and it'll be yours. Like you'll have, a, there's an, all these moving parts you and then your group get to put customised and it will feel like dying. And it'll feel like dying because there's, God binders or whatever in there, but it'll mm -hmm. really feel like Dino be yours. And it's really very, very precious. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like said Maggots and here's a manual about how to run die, as in how to think about that. How to think like Kieran Dylan uh vis -vis this RPG. Mm -hmm. There's also like character sheets and orcs and some <laughs> dice. It's good stuff. <laughs> Oh, excellent. And uh, I look forward to that Kickstarter launching. Uh, Kieran, this has been uh, a fascinating conversation. Uh, final question, uh, how can people uh, keep up with you and, and 
and Once the Future and Eternals and Die and the RPG and everything else that you got going on? Well, uh, at least way to find me is I do. Uh, I have a newsletter. It's on Button Down. Uh, it's Kit. Just if you search my name, Kieran Gillen, which will be in the podcast description, it's very easy to find me. There's a website that links to all this stuff. The newsletter goes like anytime I have a comic out, I'll do it. I'm on Twitter under my name. I'm on Instagram under my name. I'm on the Tumblr under my name. Um, there's like websites for most of my books. Uh, Di- if you're interested in the DiRPG, the beta as it exists is both on the Di- the Di site, which is diecomic.com. And it's also on itch.io under Kieran Gillen. Uh, I'm just I'm addicted to saying my name now. It's lost all meaning. Um, uh, What's the future is in fine comic shops. Uh, we're going for this fourth arc at the moment. Die's final issue should be out on September the 28th, uh, which is really exciting. There should be a link to like sign up for the Die Kickstarter in it, and hopefully it'll work. Um, I'm doing Eternals for Marvel, which is a joy. Uh, that's continuing. Like the First trade's out. The second special is probably out quite soon, I think. Probably out in the next week or two. And then we're like back in issue seven with SAD for the time for the movie. Uh, and I've got other stuff. Life's busy. It's good. <laughs> that's that's great to hear. Uh, Kieran, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a delight. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, Chris is on Infinite Earths, and the new Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by our own Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQA on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQA at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, Shoutouts on the podcast and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at Comics XF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from Comics XF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. WMQA!